0: Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, and I'm here today at a socially appropriate distance from my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What's up, Tim?
1: Good to see you, Brian, from halfway across town.
0: Yeah, halfway from uh, yeah from D.C. to Maryland. We're uh, uh, not surprisingly we're we're making some adjustments, just like everybody else, to record this one um, uh, at home through our computers. So um, we're we're just glad we could we could get together to to do this in the midst of all the craziness that's going on. Um, and uh, we're we're. Just happy to kind of keep things moving here with um in light of in light of how unusual uh day-to-day life has become here in the district and everywhere else so um so before we get started just a couple of our normal notes so obviously uh our normal disclaimer we're not giving legal advice we're not sharing confidential information we're just sharing kind of thoughts and impressions about um the various the various issues, um, of the day and and the topics we're going to cover today. Um, this is now, uh, we're recording this on Thursday, March 26th. This is now the fourth episode of Embargoed. Um, thank you again to everybody who's been, uh, tuning in, listening and giving great feedback. And, um, you know, on that score, I think we just want to encourage anybody out there who's listening, um, and who, who likes the the pod, who, Uh, we know nobody has a daily commute at the moment or very few people have a daily commute, but to the extent you're listening and you like it, please subscribe um, and give us a rating on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google stitcher, wherever you get your pods. Um, I've
1: heard that I've heard it's good background when you're, you're jogging. Um, So, you know, that would be a good use of the pod and please, you know, give us some reviews. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Yes, we are we're honored if we can help you uh pass the time during your pandemic exercise breaks uh by uh you listening to us. So uh so please as Tim said, please uh subscribe if if you like the pod, give us a rating um and uh a good rating. A good rating, yes. Hopefully five star. Right. Um hopefully a well-earned five star. Um, and and then just before we get started, uh, one last note. So I think we, we would be remiss if we didn't give a shout out to uh, to everybody who's at home at the moment, who's doing their part, trying to get the um, the COVID nineteen crisis under control. Um, so shout out to everybody out there around the world, wherever you're listening to this now. Um, thank you. And also we would be remiss if we did not give a shout out to our our good friends at Hardcast Media. Uh, Molly Roland, uh, and our producer, Matt Billman, who are keeping it going through all the craziness and, uh, are here for us even when we're in our respective bunkers, uh, to, to help us record and get this out in the world. Yeah. Give the five star
1: rating to Molly and Matt because they deserve it and watch them. They do a bunch of LinkedIn live stuff, which is awesome. So you should definitely watch the hardcast folks on, on LinkedIn.
0: Absolutely. Um, So with that, uh, we have a lot to cover. Not surprisingly, we are going to spend the bulk of our discussion, at least the first um, portion of the discussion, talking about um, all the myriad ways that uh, COVID-19 is impacting um, global trade. And I think our plan here is we're going to kind of do this in two parts. Um, The first portion of the discussion, we're going to start talking about uh, a bit of a global trade policy survey. What are some decisions and uh, trade policies that are in place, either going into place or that are longstanding in place that are impacting the crisis globally? Uh, that'll be kind of aspect number one of the discussion. And then uh, aspect number two will be kind of more practical considerations just for people in the trade space in compliance roles at uh, companies and businesses in the U.S. and around the world, what are some of the things that uh, you need to be thinking about now and that you might be bumping up against now and going forward in terms of dealing with the fallout from this? Um, So without further ado, let's jump right in. Uh, As I said, I think we want to start with a bit of a kind of a global look at trade policy and sort of how that's impacting the crisis this is going to come as absolutely no surprise to anybody um, who's listening to this but obviously uh, global trade and uh, is being impacted in a just a profound and unprecedented way by the crisis uh, and it's not again breaking news that supply chains have been massively disrupted uh, all around the world across virtually every industry in the world, and as such, kind of global commerce has has been uh, has come to a bit of a screeching halt and is is going to be kind of digging out from this for some uh, some very long period of time in all likelihood. Um, the thing that we want to focus on here, and, and we're not going to spend too, too much time on this, um, but I think it's worth referencing and talking about a bit at the outset is, again, what are the policymakers doing um, to make things better, or in many cases, maybe make things worse in certain corners of the world, um, with respect to these global sh- supply chain challenges, uh, the unprecedented um, issues that are being faced by medical professionals uh, in terms of getting adequate supplies, staying healthy themselves, being able to treat uh, patients that are coming in in um, unprecedented unprecedented numbers and in waves uh, all you know really every day uh, in just about every corner of the world so Um, I think we want to start there in terms of what are some of the things we're seeing. And I'll I'll just start by saying, I'll start, I think there's kind of a couple things we'll cover here in this section. So some are some, number one, I think when I throw to Tim one second is export restrictions. And we've seen these in certain parts of the world. Um, I think I read a report just the other day that said that fifty over 50 countries have implemented some type of export restrictions relating to medical supplies and other goods that are directly uh, sort of you know in need, in demand as a result of the, the coronavirus crisis. Um, so that's one aspect. The flip side of that obviously is sort of import um, customs, tariffs, the tariffs obviously being a big part of this in the US and how the US is dealing with, um, you know, the the tariff issue in light of the fact that they've just spent the last two years implementing um, very punitive tariffs directed mostly at china uh, and now there's potentially a need to reevaluate or at least rethink how those are being applied in the short term Um, and then of course last but not least uh, sanctions and sort of what some existing sanctions um, are doing especially in areas of, of, of some of the greatest need around the world that are hardest hit by this and so I think roughly in that order we're going to we're going to kind of cover some of these things. So let me let me throw it to Tim here initially just on the export on the export restriction side of things. Um it, and mostly here I'm thinking about what's going on in the EU and also what we've seen in parts of Asia. What are what are some your initial kind of thoughts on what's going on and what this is doing and whether this is a good or a bad or indifferent what what should we be feeling about all this?
1: So it seems like kind of a topsy-turvy time all around, but in export controls law, uh, that's no different. And what we're seeing is with respect to generally trade law has been very uh, laissez-faire with respect to uh, medicine, medical supplies, often uh, embargoes don't touch that. Uh, export controls usually are very lenient with respect to the free trade of those sorts of goods. Right now, though, because uh, countries are worried about shortages with respect to things like masks and personal protective gear and uh, medicines, there we're, what we're seeing, and I think you mentioned 50 countries have done this so far, we're seeing countries and, and, and uh, groups like the EU Essentially, create these sorts of protectionist measures that that restrict the export of masks and other types of medical supplies uh, in in anticipation of a lot of the times uh, a, a, a potential shortage. So they're essentially trying to keep these goods to themselves. Uh, it's it's a little bit worrisome. Um, I, I think the report in the EU uh, it, to the extent that the EU is restricting the the exports of these sorts of goods. Um, you, know, you understand right now, Europe is going through a very hard time. On the other hand, um, it, it, it went from China to Europe pretty quickly, went from the Europe to the US pretty quickly. I was reading reports yesterday that the virus is really starting to take off now in Africa. There's reports about South America. And so um, in some sense, in those circumstances, especially uh, in the in kind of the industrial world where a lot of these things would be produced, you kind of want the free flow of these medical supplies to to go to places where they are are, are um, of the most use, which is the reason that normally export controls law uh, really doesn 't restrict the the trade of these goods much at all, and so those are pretty worrisome developments, although we did see uh, Singapore. Um, and New Zealand step up and say they're not going to put restrictions on these goods they're going to keep the supply chains open but then you know earlier this week India announced that this experimental drug that the, the president has uh, talked about during some of his press conferences it's a, an old anti-malarial drug I, I'm going to get the name wrong but I think it's um, something along the lines of uh, hydroxychloroquine or chloronine or something along those lines but it's that's, an why old, you,
0: that's why you didn't go to medical school that
1: is one of the many reasons that i didn't go to medical school but but i think you know india has said that they're going to completely prohibit the export of that drug and they have some of the some big manufacturers of that drug in india and so so we do have this kind of weird time when when some of the goods that are normally the least restricted are becoming the goods that are the most restricted all over the world but there is some dissent on that i think it's a bad development but a, but i think it's an understandable
0: one yeah i think it's also it's going to be interesting to see, and obviously, you know, we recorded our last episode just over two weeks ago, the entire world and the entire perspective on this in the US certainly has changed in that very short window. And day to day, this is evolving so rapidly and the policymakers are flip-flopping and all over the map both in the US and abroad, all around the world, on these issues. So it is very difficult to know what this is going to look like when we sit down to do this again in a couple of weeks right. or two months from now or whenever. But I would say that one thing that I've seen sort of reported and theorized as a big problem and a big consequence that will be coming. Due to these types of policies, is the idea that in areas where, in areas like the EU, where I think I, I believe I read that 50% or over half the ventilators produced in the world are produced in the EU, and obviously in countries like the US and China that are big producers of these types of goods, there is um, perhaps less concern, there is a, a desire to protect what you have. But for comp- for countries that are net importers of this stuff massively so uh, in the developing world, what is going to happen, you know, a month, two months down the road when they can't maybe get access now there it is possible that if this plays out in a certain way maybe these will these types of restrictions will roll off i believe the initial eu restrictions were were for 6 weeks only if i if i recall and they've been in place for 10 days or so now and so you know in late april early may maybe they go away maybe they get relaxed i don't know but uh these are going to be things to keep in mind depending on where you sit in the world and what the need is in in your particular country for these types of goods these are these are issues that governments and policymakers can and should be wrestling with right now because this is it's evolving so rapidly and it's going to impact so many things very profoundly
1: well it is you know one of the one of the main sources of of um calls, one of the main types of calls that, that I've been getting, I think you've been getting over the past couple of weeks have been in with respect to, to these laws and, and the laws we're going to talk about in a second with respect to US sanctions. Um, how do you navigate these laws? And it, it gets pretty complex, um, especially because like you said, Brian, the, the rules are changing almost every day. And, uh, and, and so Trying to navigate them is is tricky in any point of time, but when you 've got a crisis and you 've got the 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 focus of the of, of COVID nineteen moving from continent to continent so quickly it, it really does become difficult
0: yeah and, and so before we move on to sanctions uh, i i would i, I want to pivot for a minute just to how this is playing out in the u s so in the u s at present we don't have any export restrictions relating to these types of goods. Um, What we do have, though, that's bearing directly on the crisis, which is another issue and area that we've been getting a lot of inquiries and calls on, is we have uh, the tariffs targeting China. And given that there has been a push of late to, uh, you know, ramp up uh, importation of certain of these goods that we don't perhaps produce or have in large supply here in the States, that's becoming an issue. The USTR just, I believe it was yesterday, just put out a federal register notice. You can comment on, you know, sort of asking for comments relating to items that have been impacted by the 301 tariffs and how we, they maybe need to reevaluate some of those things in light of the COVID-19 crisis. So that's kind of a pending issue right now. Everybody's aware in the States of the fact that we are woefully, um, unprepared for adequate testing. And so, there, are, um, you know, we're aware that there are home testing kits and uh, point of care testing kits and other things that are people are trying to get into the US right now that are going to be dealing with various types of uh, issues on the way in, whether it be tariffs or otherwise. And so, those are all things that are getting still getting sorted out. Um, there was also, there's been reports that perhaps there would be delays on the input, on the um, implementation of certain duties. There's there's been talk of a 90-day delay on certain tariffs. There have been very mixed messages coming out of the White House and other parts of Washington on whether that's something the administration would really get behind. Uh, So that kind of remains to be seen how that's going to play out. Tariffs, obviously, globally tend to be a big issue in this space and are are seen as, not surprisingly, by many policy experts as being just inc- incredibly damaging and counterproductive when you're in a situation like we are now where the, the need for urgent and quick flow of goods is going to be impeded by by those just necessarily. Um, and then the, the last thing that I'll throw out there before I throw back to Tim is uh, there's the there's been a lot of chatter the last several days in the States about whether or not the administration is going to invoke its authority under the Defense Production Act to... Essentially, incentivize private—not only incentivize, but to put the U.S. government at the front of the line in terms of prioritization for any orders of these priority medical uh, goods and equipment. And for those who don't know, and I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on this, and, and our our colleagues who work in the government contract space at Miller and Chevalier would be much better uh, suited to give you a, a 101 on this. But from everything that we we know and we've read. Essentially, the Defense Production Act, which is kind of a wartime power that um, has been invoked uh, in the past, would would allow the government to, again, sort of jump to the head of the queue in terms of allowing the U.S. government to get its hands on this type of equipment, these types of goods from private companies in the U.S., which would necessarily stem the flow of some of the those goods outside of the U.S. Any of these things that are being ordered by Countries in Asia or Europe or other parts of the world, that supply may end up being staying domestic if that is if that's invoked. Again, at this point, very unclear whether or not the administration is going to invoke that, although there have been some vocal uh, some vocal proponents of that uh, but it's it's unclear whether that's going to happen but that, could in some ways sort of have the same effect that we're seeing with export restrictions in terms of limiting supply of U.S. goods that can flow abroad in this space. Again, very unclear whether that's going to happen, but something certainly to keep keep your eyes on in the next couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, the other piece to that is I understand the economic theory is, and again, our, our government, government contracts uh, partners would probably be more conversant in this, but the way I understand the economic theory is it does create uh, the ability of the federal government to get more stuff and distribute it with through the United States under this wartime analogy, but it also creates more supply. That is, it basically says to private industry, "You will have a market. We have a man- If you produce this, we will buy it." the government says. And so, so rather than actually try and tailor production to what you think the market is going to be, you have this incentive to make as much of this stuff as you can, because you have a, you have a buyer that is automatically going to buy it. So in the long run, it, it might increase supplies enough, uh, it, it, that, that, you know, the U S wouldn't be taking them all. But the problem is, is that, you know, hopefully this thing isn't around in, in six months, or at least it's in, around in a very different, um, in a very, very much more limited form. So who knows how long the long run is going to
0: Right. So I think the main takeaway, as anybody with a discerning ear could probably tell, is that uh, we know very little about this uh, at this moment <laughs> because this crisis continues to evolve at such a rapid pace and the policymakers Are really as I said the flip-flopping on this and the kind of knee-jerk reactions to things both in the US and around the world has been pretty astounding over the course of the last few weeks and I would anticipate for the foreseeable future that that is going to continue to be the case and we're not going to have a lot of coherence in terms of how this is all playing out from a policy perspective uh anytime soon if not if if ever and i i believe there was i saw a report today that there was going to be a conference call among g20 leaders to try to somehow compare notes slash harmonize strategies with respect to some of this um not to be too cynical but i mean (laughs) we have a hard time agreeing with we have a hard time agreeing with anybody about anything and uh maybe this will force everyone to uh be cooler heads to to come to this discussion but uh it it really remains to be seen sort of how um how everybody is going to get on the same page around the world with this so that's i think a perfect place to pivot to the the last sort of topic we want to talk about here from a policy perspective which is sanctions and so on this i think the 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 place we have to start is iran which is one of the hardest hit areas in the world by the by the crisis and I think there's two, there's kind of two pieces to this. So on the one hand, there have been, especially over the course of the last few days, there have been an increasing number of calls from uh, UN leaders and from other countries around the world for an easing of sanctions, not just toward Iran, but to any countries that are being drastically impacted by this. Although I think reading between the lines, everybody understands that they're really pointing to Iran because they've been the most hard hit by this and the projections there are quite dire if there's not some uh, major shift in terms of how the virus and the, um, the crisis is being handled there. So uh, so that's one thing. And, and obviously that is mostly pointed at the US because it is US sanctions that are driving a lot of the uh, scarcity in, in the view of some of, of these critical supplies and are causing a lot of the economic hardship that's going on in Iran. So that's one piece. Now, the flip side of that is kind of the official U.S. position on this. So earlier this month, there was, um, very helpfully, there was an FAQ that was issued by OFAC. It was FAQ 828, which talked about, basically, the question was, I want to provide humanitarian assistance to Iran in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. How do I do that? And then it really just, it essentially just recited, all of the uh, the standard uh, guidance that is out there about how you can lawfully provide humanitarian assistance from the U.S. by, you know, by U.S. persons to Iran, uh, consistent with all of the um, the TISRA general license and the other mechanisms that exist for that. And we spent some time in the last episode talking a lot about that. And we theorized at the time that perhaps this signal that the U.S. was maybe taking a softer stance on Iran, and maybe there was some discussions or other negotiations that could be going on behind the scenes to potentially open back up uh, some type of negotiations uh, that could step in where the JSOPOA uh, fell apart a couple years ago. A couple with that though, the fact that just today, there were 20 additional designations by OFAC of individuals, in Iran and Iraq that are tied to IRGC-related activities. And last week, there were five designations related to petroleum uh, trade connected to uh, NIAC and Iran. And so um, there certainly does not seem to be any easing on the enforcement side on the U.S., uh, And even even as it is pointing to the fact that there is an established uh, path to provide humanitarian assistance. And then I think the last point I'll make is I think as most know, and as Tim and I know from our clients and from the questions we get, regardless of the fact that it may be legal to provide humanitarian assistance for U.S. persons um, to Iran, uh, as a practical matter, it's very difficult because financial institutions, uh, shipping companies, and and the like just don't want to deal with Iran. And you're not going to be able to reverse that on, on a dime in the midst of this crisis all that easily. And so I think we have international calls to ease. We have the U.S. pretty much carrying on business as usual with respect to Iran. And I think we have the Iranians kind of deep, deeply resentful and skeptical of U.S. Uh, involvement in any of this based on the news reporting. So what do we make of all of that at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, so so it, it, it looks like, I think from abroad, it looks like the the efforts of U.S. policymakers, the U.S. Treasury to get the word out that humanitarian trade with Iran is okay is, is a little too little too late um, because of the, the financing issues. Now, to be fair to, to Treasury, they really did, there really was an effort by um, easing the sanctions against the Central Bank of Iran to make financing of these transactions easier. And there has been some, the guidance that you mentioned, FAQ 828, does give a roadmap on how to get things into Iran. Unfortunately, until the banks get the message that U S policy is really easing on these issues. And, and, and so far they, they don't seem to have, that's not going to do any good because, and I guess it's kind of a lesson that if you spend 20 some months saying anybody who does business with Iran will become an enemy of the United States and not really clarifying that humanitarian trade isn't included in that because there were a lot of statements that were public statements that were made that really didn't make that point very clearly coming in when there's a huge humanitarian crisis going on in Iran and saying, oh, well, let's be clear, all these things that we're saying about Iran and all these things that we're continuing to do with sanctions against Iran, including, like you mentioned, Brian, sanctions as of today, which also took the, the the weird step of clarifying that the the supreme leader of Iran is, in fact, the supreme leader of Iran in his right. sanctions notice. I mean, previously, it just had his name and birthday and, and identifying information. But today, they made clear that on the tag, it says that he's the supreme leader of Iran. I mean, doing those sorts of things, sends a message to the world that the U S is not going to is against any trade with Iran so clearly and so sharply that it's pretty hard to undo. And I think that's what I, I do think that the, the policymakers in Washington are trying to undo that, but I think they're seeing that, um, you know, 20 months of effort is a little bit hard to undo in a couple of FAQs.
0: Yeah. And I think I would add, I agree with all of that. And I think that, um, you know we'll see what happens especially as the reporting out of Iran continues to be quite uh grim on on the the course that the crisis is taking and the and the the tools that they have to deal with it, it you know i wouldn't i wouldn't rule out that things could could shift at some point in the future, but uh, the question would be, is that is that going to be too little, too late? Uh, but for now, I agree, it, it's the the U.S. is 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 more or less business as usual with respect to Iran, and it's in sort of the maximum pressure and all the rest of it, taking some of the provocative actions you talked about. An interesting counterpoint on this is another uh, r- report, just a couple of days ago, suggested that um, the president sent a letter to Kim Jong Un, suggesting that the U.S. would sta- was standing ready to provide whatever assistance the North Korean uh, leader needs in in respect to the COVID nineteen crisis. So. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that, really. Uh, they've uh, the, the news reporting on that certainly had some sourcing that confirmed that 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 did it happen. But what does that really mean? And is that really meaningful at all? Uh, or is there is there any move afoot to provide any kind of relief? I don't know. There's also we don't. We don't believe at this time, based on the reporting, that the crisis is is anywhere near the scale of of severity in North Korea that it is in Iran and other places. So, I, I don't know if anything will come of this, but it's just sort of an interesting counterpoint, in light of the fact that those are probably the two most sanction, heavily sanctioned countries in the world from the U.S. perspective, and and the tone and the approach uh, very very uh, different as to both. I, I,
1: just a couple of comments on that. Uh, first. Our policy with respect to North Korea, setting politics aside, is just so weird right now, um, because it, it does seem that North Korea's behavior, that is supposed to be deterred by these sanctions, is not being deterred by them at all. In fact, it's amped up. You know, they're still sending off rockets um, and testing more advanced rockets on a There was just
0: just another basis. one. Yeah, just another one the other day.
1: So, so, so it, it doesn't seem like the sort of situation where you'd kind of reach out and offer to to do something, you know, friendly. Now, obviously, we're in the middle of a humanitarian crisis, so that does mitigate it somewhat. But, but it does seem like, with respect to to North Korea, it's really hard to to tell what these sorts of letters mean in the great scheme of things. As a practical matter. I, I do think North Korea and Iran have a one big difference, and the big difference is that uh, North Korea, um, you know, has a nearby allied country in China, for for whom the sanctions have. Been uh, not a particularly heavy deterrent all along, and so in the middle of a humanitarian crisis, I would suspect that China is not hesitating in the slightest to send whatever it needs and is able to send into North Korea, um, and so I don't think that the sanctions will have as big an effect on North Korea supplies because there are other, you know, there are other close geographic neighbors, Russia, who is also not likely to be deterred much by US sanctions, particularly when it comes to humanitarian goods. And the the fact is, is that there's the same sort of humanitarian exceptions for the North Korea sanctions, um, as there are for the Iran sanctions. But I think as a practical matter, those humanitarian exceptions are likely to work in connection with North Korea in a way that they're not with Iran, because Europe is much more fearful of US sanctions than either China or Russia are. And so North Korea is likely getting whatever it's able to get. From China and Russia in a way that uh, that Iran is is not currently getting supplied um, it, to the same extent because the, its suppliers are much more fearful of u s sanctions
0: right no agreed agreed on that front, I think it's uh, again, I don't know that there's much to be made of it uh, or that we'll see much, especially on the North Korea point, but uh, it's something to keep an eye on and, and was just sort of an interesting item that that popped up in the news the other day so um, Again, with that, I think the the takeaway is nobody knows anything with respect to the crisis or its impact on trade. Policymakers seem to be making, you know, very, um, uh, not necessarily big picture decisions on some of this. It's all very, it seems very short-term tactical, uh, you know, some, somewhat understandably, but certainly not uh, big picture focused at this point. And so it'll be interesting to see if things, uh, settle down and uh, change much over the course of the next, uh, you know, come few weeks or month or two as as things start to um, hopefully smooth out globally. But we we shall see. So with that, I think uh, we should now turn away from the more esoteric policy side of things and more to the nitty gritty sort of practical considerations that uh, that we're seeing and that we think people need to be aware of in, in terms of managing their way through the crisis. Great.
1: Well, so, you know, the world, with the world turned upside down, most businesses are turned upside down. I heard that the 3.3 million Americans sought unemployment insurance this week alone. So it is, uh, it, it, it is, a, we are in the middle of a, an economic crisis as well as a health crisis. And, and one of the big questions for any company that deals in the export or export control, um, you know, expo- that exports goods, that makes goods, and has export compliance functions, is how do you deal with um, making sure that your exports are complying with the export controls rules or complying with sanctions in the middle of a crisis? Uh, you know, we've had some preliminary insight into this at this point, and the answer is, is that as much as the, the world is being turned upside down just generally, Um, the export and sanctions compliance field is also really going to face some real challenges over the next few months. And, and the question I guess is whether those challenges are going to continue beyond that. Now, um, OFAC last year and and, the, and BIS before that, but both of them uh, have done it around the same time, have come out with the the, the five features of uh, a highly functioning compliance uh, high compliance department, and the 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 attributes are that you you. Do a risk assessment, you figure out as a business where your risks are, and that is an ongoing risk assessment. So, you know, as times change, where are your risks that you have management buy in that you have internal controls that are um, that are basically a key design to make sure that your, your trade complies with export controls and, and sanctions laws. And then you uh, have training to make sure that your employees understand what's happening and you have auditing to make sure that whatever your program is designed to do, you test it to make sure that it's actually controlling the behaviors that you want to control. All of those things are really turned upside down in a crisis like this. So for example, um, you know when you, have, when you want to try and figure out where your risks are, you're basing it on kind of on normal times. so a risk assessment really doesn't account for this sort of emergency situation where the risks may be very different, where the, the laws have all changed, um, especially with respect to certain types of products. In terms of management buy-in and management support, you know, tone at the top, as we often talk about, I think it's very hard for the the leadership of a company to be really focused on compliance with export controls and sanctions rules when they're trying to save the company or navigate it through a, you know, real crisis that really doesn't have anything to do with the trade laws. And so I think it's a lot harder in a time period like this to get management focused. And certainly, I don't think management is going to turn against compliance during a time frame like this. This, but I think that it's certainly that it's understandable that it would not be its top priority or even you know among the top priorities during this time frame it, when it comes to when it comes to um, audits and and uh, internal controls I think again and, and I'm seeing it some you probably are too Brian in 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 the sanction space uh, you know I, I do think that that companies particularly with respect to humanitarian trade are becoming, more risk tolerant that is um, they, their their reasoning is basically I know what the rules are, they would normally worry me, but we're in the middle of a humanitarian pr- crisis. I'm going to send these masks into Iran and, and I'm going to worry about it later. And I do think that, to, that some financial institutions, maybe not the major ones, but I do think some financial institutions are becoming more risk tolerant in a time like this. So I think all of the attributes of a normal compliance program uh, are, are really kind of stretched here or the, the incentives have kind of changed. And I guess my question to you is, Assuming that's true, what is going to happen in six months if we go back to normal, where you've gotten a lot more risk tolerance in the compliance programs, and maybe some of the attributes of a, a functioning compliance program have changed and, and might not be as as good as they were in a, in a normal
0: time? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think the related point there as well is, you know, the sort of r- the perhaps Adjusted risk tolerance in the midst of a crisis also reflects the idea that enforcers are going to be also taking a similarly uh, you know nuanced or differentiated view in light of the what's going on right now, right I mean they are it's hard to imagine that, that a year from now or eighteen months from now we're going to be reading about some enforcement action. That OFAC brings or the BIS were to bring about sending medical equipment into Iran or someplace. You know that has that's heavily restricted uh, under sort of normal circumstances because somebody was trying and to do their level best and to comply with the exceptions for humanitarian goods and may have uh, you know may have fouled up in the in the process, right? I, I just can't imagine that we're really going to see that um, now. We're we're just sort of putting our common sense hats on a little bit here, and we're and I'm thinking as a former government person sort of what would would that appeal to me to be pursuing that type of an enforcement action the the answer for me personally would be no right. but uh you know so that so that is um there is a give and take there in terms of what what's going out into the what the world is perceiving and and just certain industries are perceiving here in terms of risks and how enforcers are going to be viewing that in hindsight as well and i think your your point is a good one which is you know let's say that in the midst of all of this Somehow you shift your audit function to a purely uh, virtual one and you don't, you don't do site visits and you don't do, and maybe you do that for trainings as well. Everything goes online. You don't do in-person trainings anymore. You don't do whatever the case may be because there's going to be, this is the way companies may be operating for a few months at least, Um, you know, Six months from now, do you decide, well, let's just always do it that way. We don't ever need to send anybody anywhere. We don't ever need to have in-person training. We don't ever need to um, you know go back to the way we used to do things. It's actually maybe we're saving money doing it this way. Maybe uh, it seemed fine, like let's just keep doing it that way and And I think that runs some risk that if that is not a thoughtful decision that is made among the management level and senior compliance people at a, co- at a company, then you're opening yourself up to, well, we just kind of fell into this and that just we just kind of kept doing it that way. And that might open you up to some criticism, perhaps rightfully so from enforcers or um, uh, regulators down the road who said, well, okay, we understand for a certain amount of time, but then you never really took a hard look at this again. You just kind of fell into this and never never adjusted. So, yeah, I think that's I mean, so, something to keep in mind.
1: so this is this is you put your finger on my big fear, and it's not just in the compliance space, although I think the compliance space is a great example of it, where if you start doing these, Audits that are, you know, virtual audits. Um, do you decide that those that those are just as good and much cheaper because you don't have the travel costs and the time costs? Um, do you do that in, when you do due diligence during a, a the merger and acquisition process where you're trying to go out and look for export and sanctions uh, potential problems with the compliance program of the company that you're buying.
0: Or do you internal do that investigations.
1: internal investigations, yep. right? And and the problem that I see is that that this sort of diligence or these sorts of investigations or audits they're definitely going to be cheaper but they're going to be not nearly as good because we both know that being in the room with somebody you know you can make small talk you can talk about you can get, you can you can establish rapport that will actually get somebody comfortable enough to really start talking with you you can actually see things like you know the Capitol is not really behind me right now while I'm talking. I don't know if we're going to ever show this video, but there's a video of the Capitol right behind me. It's not the Capitol. And (laughs) nobody who was interviewing me would know exactly what is behind me. There could be an entire like rock band playing behind me (laughs) for you guys know. And, and you wouldn't be able to tell, but obviously if you, if you were in the room, you could. And so, so live discussions um, are, obviously a better way to do things. But can I put my finger on the sorts of information that I would be able to get if I were doing a live audit or a live interview? No, I, I can't. And so if, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm a client, and, and my lawyer is saying, I want to do this by through live interviews. I think live audits are the better way to go. I think that, um, you know, due diligence is going to require some sort of real meaningful discussion with people and, but it's going to cost you a lot more. The client might say, yeah, you just want to do that because you want to make this cost more, but there's no really good reason to do it. And when you can't put your finger on a tangible piece of information that you could get from doing it that way, I think after companies get used to doing it um you know the virtual way, they may decide that that's good enough and and I worry about that because i I, I think that in a lot of situations you will miss the things that you're supposed to find
0: yeah I, th- I think another uh, another point to be made there is again always keeping and we we try very hard to do this when we're advising our clients and when we're restructuring these types of uh projects for them. Is well, what would the regulator or what would the enforcer think, right? So if we if 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 we are find ourselves in a position, let's say there's a voluntary disclosure that's made to to BIS or to OFAC, and we're called in to help investigate, and there are uh, maybe under normal circumstances we would have gone to, to on-site. Or to maybe even multiple sites to interview a number of people in person. Maybe supplemented that with phone interviews or Skype or Zoom or something like that. Reviewed documents. You know, maybe done some forensic financial analysis if that had been called for, etc. Right? That's that's kind of the full playbook, the full set. Maybe now, okay. So in person is out. Certainly, if it has to happen in the next month or two, that's. Likely not going to happen. Uh, so maybe everything is over the phone or video conference. Maybe that's okay. Uh, but you know, again, thinking ahead to, given the sort of unique circumstances you're dealing with, given this the gravity of the potential violations you're looking into, if you're sitting down someday in front of that agency or in front of DOJ and you're defending the thoroughness and the breadth in depth of your investigation in the hopes that the enforcer, the regulator is going to basically look at what you did and say, okay, we will credit what you did and your findings. And we will use that as the basis to say, no action, no penalty, or drastically reduced penalty, drastically reduced, uh, you know, action to be taken against the company, right? So that is always something that has to be kept in front of mind. And again, to Tim's point, Given the the unprecedented situation we're in, given that companies all around the world and all kinds of industries are struggling right now to just uh, pay their employees and to do normal keep their you know the lights on quite literally, uh, understandable if if these things have to be you know modified uh, for some length of time, but but I think the message that we're trying to convey is that these Hopefully now as things are being rolled back or modified, it's being done thoughtfully and strategically and hopefully down the road when it may be time to think again, well, do we want to go back to the way we were doing it before or do we want to modify what we have been doing for the past several months? That's being done thoughtfully strategically. And it's not just, okay, well we've slipped into this practice and now that's what we're doing forevermore. That, that is, that's, potentially dangerous, and that's potentially going to open people up to um, to exposure.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, in an enforcement action, for sure, and, and really in the due diligence context, too, whatever problems there are, are going to come to light when we're long past this crisis, you know, uh, let's knock wood on that. But I, I think it's pretty safe to say in a couple of years, we're going to be through this. And that's when the enforcers are going to be looking at it. And they, and they are not going to have a lot of sympathy for the idea that you did kind of a shoddy investigation or that you missed things because you got into this habit during the COVID crisis of doing everything virtually and you decided that was good enough. And so, you know, what's the problem with doing an investigation that was a lot more uh, streamlined or, or maybe, you know, a more derogatory term. And, and, you know, that's why you missed it. I mean, that is going to look really bad in hindsight, even if, you know, the, the origins of the problem are understandable.
0: And to go back, even, even taking it out of the investigation context or the due diligence context, things that are more discreet and oftentimes longer uh, duration, you know, that these are things that are going to last months, if not longer, sometimes um, even on just the day-to-day compliance front, when you're talking about, uh trade and what the current crisis is doing you know your your screening for for customers for partners um your record keeping your approval process um all of those things are being you know severely tested are being severely tested that's exactly right so how how good are your current processes i mean in times of crisis you can often learn a lot so maybe they're you know i think we know again from talking with some of our clients some people who feel pretty good about what they have in place and feel like it's working pretty seamlessly right now and others that we know are struggling and are trying to almost reinvent the wheel in real time to uh, to adjust and to continue to do these things in some form or fashion but are are really challenged so you know again um, just things to be kind of bearing in mind for for folks in the compliance space out there and in the investigation space um, in terms of what you're what you're what you're pivoting to right now versus again three months six months a year from now when it's time to sort of take a deep breath and look back on this and hopefully have clear eyes and say, what do we, what was good that we can keep? What do we need to go back to that we did before? Maybe what's new that we want to do instead. All of those types of things I think are, are going to be critical. And, and so I think that's at a high level, those are sort of the big, the big takeaways we have there. Totally agree. Um, okay. So with that, I think that's going to, that's going to conclude this sort of official, uh, COVID-19 portion of the, of the pod, uh, now that, uh, you know, we've spent a good solid uh, 40 minutes or so talking on that. Um, And and we're going to go back to we have a few things to hit here um, of interest that have popped up kind of in the last couple weeks that are not necessarily related to the crisis, but uh, more in line with what we've kind of would normally cover. So uh, for item number one, uh, let me let me start by going to uh, Southern District of New York and a jury verdict that was handed down just beginning of last week. It feels like it was years ago, but it was just about 10 days ago um, in the trial of Ali Sadr Hashemi Najad, who's known uh, as as uh, we'll just call him Mr. Sauter. That is how he's typically referred in court documents and otherwise. Um, So Mr. Sauter was found guilty, five counts, uh, including uh, conspiracy to defraud the US, uh, conspiracy to evade sanctions, um, bank fraud, uh, in connection with a scheme that I'm not even gonna try to encapsulate the whole thing here because it is quite convoluted, but essentially Mr. Sauter uh, was part of an Iranian company that had a an agreement uh, for a big construction project in Venezuela. So we have two of our favorite uh, sanctions targets in the mix. It, this goes back now like 15 years ago. So this is quite a long time ago that this all got started. But essentially, the underlying allegations that were that he was convicted of all have to do with the idea that Um, Payments and money flowing in connection with this construction project were done through a number of front companies that were established in uh, Switzerland and Turkey and uh, BVI and St. Kitts and Nevis and places like that uh, to uh, be able to allow some of those companies to deal directly with the U.S. financial uh, sector and U.S. banks as correspondent uh, and intermediary banks, so that these these deals, these payments, uh, the flow of funds could be done in U.S. dollars. That's essentially what the scheme uh, was, and what it what this all came down to. Uh, and what I think we're going to talk about, and I'll get Tim's quick thoughts on here, since this is the lighting round, is the idea that um, a you know a case where. Mr. Soder was obviously not present in the U.S. for any of this conduct. The, all of the things that were going on were in, um, were in far-flung parts of the world. But at the end of the day, he was accused essentially of defrauding the U.S. financial system and uh, being in essentially eliciting and receiving services from U.S. banks under false pretenses, which is that they didn't realize they were actually providing services and U.S. dollar transactions on behalf of Iran. An Iranian entity and Iranian individuals, and that that uh, was was a amount of the sanctions evasion. So that is uh, so that's kind of the crux of it. So I want to know from you, Tim, just quick thoughts on um, you know we don't again we don't see many cases like this come to U.S. criminal courts. So the fact that this went to trial is pretty notable. Um, And then just a few thoughts on kind of how this ended up coming out and. Um, you know what was what was kind of put forward as a defense here, and, and maybe why why perhaps in this case that didn't that didn't prove effective with the jury.
1: Yeah, so we don't see many of these cases go to trial. Um, it is a a good example of a case that has you know from a lay perspective very limited connection to the United States, right? You have a you have a building project in Venezuela. You have the allegation being that it was essentially financed by uh, the Iranian Housing Authority. And that the only connection to the U.S. is that the money moved through some financial institutions um, that were not U.S. financial institutions, but it moved in dollars, so there was some connection to U.S. financial institution. And when you look at the indictment, it was, the, the, there was some suggestion, and I think because they had to try and come up with some connection to the US, that this was done, that that you, the US was voluntarily looped into this in order to take advantage of the US financial system. And then the bankers set up a scheme where they would hide the, the connection to Iran. Um, and there were some, there were some, uh, you know, particular facts that made it look like that definitely could have been going on. But it, all in all, there just wasn't much connection to the U.S. And so as I understand the defense, it was a combination of this case really has nothing to do with the United States, which is a defense that has had some recent success in in front of some New York juries. And, and then the other part of it was uh, that U.S. sanctions laws are so complicated that as a layperson, that the defendant, uh, Mr. Sotter, uh, didn't realize that. Just using the U.S. financial system was enough of a connection to the U.S. to trigger U.S. Uh, sanctions laws, or certainly criminal U.S. sanctions laws. Because the way that the the law works, I mean, as you said, Brian, is that you have to violate the sanctions laws willfully, willfully for it to be criminal. So you have to understand what the laws are and intentionally um, violate them. And so, so you know, the defense was, I didn't, I didn't quite understand the sanctions rules, and in any event, um, I. I this, this case has really no connection to the U S kind of the first part is almost a jury nullification argument. It's like, this is, this is really isn't any of your business. So you should acquit me for that reason. Then the second part is much more of a legal defense of, you know, how was I supposed to know that this was criminal when I'm not from the U S and none of this, none of this connection had, or this transaction had such a limited connection to the U S the defense obviously, you know, failed, Uh, in this instance, um, it didn't look like there was much else to really go on because as a lot of these cases go, you know, the facts especially with the financial transactions, are going to be largely undisputed. They've got all the financial records. And unless you're going to say you know, that somebody was creating a bunch of false financial records um, in connection with a transaction, you know, you're not going to have much other defense than to say, yeah, this is what happened, but I didn't intend to violate US law. Is almost always going to be the defense um, in one of these cases. Here, it didn't work. Um, now, what was interesting is the, you know, the jury deliberations um, took place, uh, you know, at the start of the, the COVID outbreak in New York, and two of the jurors got sick and couldn't deliberate in person. And so at least one of them deliberated by phone. And so how that affected the dynamic, we'll never know, I think, because there was no defense objection to the phone deliberations. There was a the, an objection from the government, uh, which was overruled, but no objection from the defense so i i 'm not sure that issue is ever going to get litigated, but it does kind of going forward uh, present some issues if if jury trials start to take place you know in this environment it are are you know socially distant jury deliberations consistent with the the u s constitution
0: yeah the la- <laughs> yeah, absolutely the last thing i 'll say on this is. To, to the point we've, that Tim made about, we don't see many of these go to trial. Um, you know, the willfulness evidence and the, the defense of, I just, it was too complicated. I'm not a US person. How was I supposed to know that I couldn't do these things or that I couldn't um, sort of route things in this way or make these modifications, et cetera. Um, it will be interesting to see if this goes up on appeal Uh, there's oftentimes a lot of fascinating briefing on these issues when they go up on appeal. Again, they don't, they don't happen often. They seem, almost always to be in the second circuit. So uh, we'll have to, that'll be a ways off, but that's something worth keeping an eye on if if this does go up on, on appeal to the second circuit and what types of issues they um, they focus on there. Because uh, I think that, I think it'll largely be some rehash of what you just heard from Tim in terms of uh, whether it's a jury instruction question or some other aspect of Uh, of the defense theory or the defense case that that we might be seeing again sort of teed up in a a new context. So uh, with that, uh, let's go to item number two. So
1: item number two uh, is out of Venezuela. And that what we originally had planned to talk about with respect to Venezuela in connection with the maximum pressure on the Maduro regime was the the recent March 12th designation of uh, a trading company called TNK TNK Trading. That designation was similar to one um, in connection with a company called Rosneft Trading that took place uh, late in February. And in both of those designations were arose out of uh, these companies helping uh, PetaVesa, which for for anyone uh, who is transcribing this is P D V S A Petavasa. Um, so because the the transcript uh, for the for the last uh, YouTube video had something different. So I just want to make sure that this one is actually Petavesa. But, so they were both working with the Venezuelan state oil company, Petavesa, um, to sell Venezuelan oil. The revenues were going to the Maduro government and that got uh, TNK designated in the same way Rosneft had been for operating in the Venezuelan oil sector. Now, one one part of the designation and the press release in connection with the designation was kind of ominous, uh, but it does suggest what's really going on, which is that the 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 OFAC made clear that uh, this designation need not be permanent and is intended to change behavior, and that the U.S. has made clear that they would lift sanctions for those who take concrete, meaningful, and verifiable actions to support democratic order in Venezuela. Now, what that Means basically is if you stop supporting Maduro, then you're not nearly as at risk of being designated, even if you're operating in the oil sector of Venezuela, or at least what I think I read into it um, with what that meant. Now, the U.S. opposition to the Maduro uh, regime uh, got much tougher today. <laughs> um, just before the podcast started, um, Brian sent me a, a press release from the Justice Department uh, showing that. Uh, that Nicolas Maduro, along with the Chief Justice of the Venezuelan Supreme Court, and I believe the Secretary of De- the Defense for, for Venezuela, have all been indicted in U.S. courts for drug dealing. And the 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 indict the, there's a big uh, DOJ uh, description of the indictment, including maps that show that show drugs moving from uh, Venezuela to Central America. Um, the money flows and that sort of thing. And so there are a bunch of indict- indictments all around the country uh, related to this. I think Maduro's was in the Southern District of, of New York. And so, to the extent there was pressure on Maduro yesterday, that pressure today has gotten significantly more serious. He's now under a federal indictment in New York that's been unsealed. And I assume that the U.S. Uh, intends to. Uh, add that to the pressure on the maduro regime so the tnk designation was one (laughs) sign of that but today's indictment was a a pretty serious escalation of the maximum pressure
0: yeah i didn't think when i woke up this morning i didn't think we'd be talking about manuel noriega on this podcast but this is out of the manuel noriega playbook from the late 80s and early 90s um so one quick word on tnk and then one quick word on maduro uh since this is the lightning round after all. So TNK, I thought it was interesting in the, in the press release that uh, they, they say explicitly we're designating TNK because they, st- they stepped into the shoes of the Rosneft trading entity that we just designated two weeks ago yep. to continue to facilitate the movement of petroleum uh, from PDVSA. So if you ever wanted, if you wanted to look up in the dictionary what evasion looks like, that's it. <laughs> Right. Entity one goes on the list and then sort of ent- related entity two steps in to, to continue uh, the conduct of, of entity one that has now been thwarted by the sanctions. So I thought that was interesting. And then to Tim's uh, point about the indictment, I, this, it's way too early for us to know what this really means. All I will say is in, uh, again, my reference to Manuel Noriega, this is obviously a highly provocative step being taken by the US government to indict Maduro, who they take great pains to to refer to as the former leader of Venezuela in their press release um, for narco trafficking. Uh, the The other named parties, these are all Venezuelan officials or former officials and also leaders of the FARC who are indicted in this case or in these, which are a sprawling case, as Tim said, it's it's indictments in multiple jurisdictions in the US. So I don't even think we can scratch the surface on this today, but I do think, and the one last thing I'll mention is, there's a fifteen million dollars reward for the arrest, capture, and indictment of Maduro. So they've, the US is essentially, and I'm somebody's going to probably call me out on this or and so I, I apologize in advance, but they've essentially put a bounty on Maduro for fifteen to the tune of fifteen million dollars, less or so, ten million and five million for other people who are named in the indictments today. So that is a, again, a highly provocative step by the US government. So we will continue to watch this, but this is taking maximum pressure to a level that we haven't seen in, in decades.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there appear to be, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine cases in uh, Arizona, D.C., the Southern District of Florida, which is Miami, Eastern District of New York, which is Brooklyn, Southern District of New York, which is Manhattan, and then the Southern District of Texas and Houston. So they've got, you know, all of these cases related to this indictment. So it's clear that the maximum pressure has increased. And, um, you know, we got a comment on one of the earlier podcasts with respect to the U.S. policy to, you know, not only force Medora out, but to bring in uh, uh, interim President Guido. And uh, the comment related to it President Guaidó's support within Venezuela. And to be very clear, President uh, Guaidó or interim President Guaido has considerable support in Venezuela. He is an elected leader of their, their legislature. and And I think we talked about on the earlier podcast, how that does uh, it is a little bit different from other uh, sanctions regi- regimes in which the U.S. has supported uh, ouster of the leadership but had no viable uh, alternative. Here, uh, President Guido, interim President Guido, is obviously a, a, a locally supported viable alternative, but uh, that does not change the picture that the U.S. sanctions policy clearly, and even more so after today, is to, to drive out um, what they refer to as former president Maduro.
0: Yeah. And I think just to clarify that, that point as well, I think the, the, there was, if there was any suggestion or anybody took uh, our comments to suggest that the U S had handpicked Guaido to be the president of Venezuela, that was not what we meant to say. That was perhaps some loose talk on in the podcast format, but um, the U S has obviously recognized him as have many, many other countries around the world as as the interim leader. And and that was really all that was, that was meant to be conveyed. So, uh, Again, something to keep an eye on. This is a fascinating development uh, in the midst of all the other uh, sort of craziness that's going on in the world at the moment. So, um, with that, let's go to. That was not super lightning, but there was a lot to cover there. So I'll give us I'll give us a um, a break on that one. Uh, two more to go. So uh, next topic. I'm going to stay down in Latin America. We're going to move to Nicaragua, and uh, I wanted to call. We wanted to call attention to something that came out. This maybe didn't get as much attention as some things that have been going on recently, but in early March, I believe it was March 5th, there was a, a designation, series of designations uh, that OFAC uh, released relating to the Nicaraguan National Police. And in fact, uh, they designated the Nicaraguan National Police uh, as an institution itself, as an SDN, and three commissioners of uh, the NNP as well, Um, I think this is noteworthy for a couple of reasons. Uh, I have to say I I was lucky enough to be able to go down to Nicaragua last uh, year in the the summertime and to give a talk down there uh, uh, in front of a very large and interested uh, and engaged audience who was very interested to understand more about the relatively new U.S. sanctions targeting Nicaragua and targeting some of the facets of the Ortega government that have been the cause of so much concern down there, and uh, meet also with many different individuals and companies who are deeply uh, involved in, uh, in society and in various industries down in Nicaragua. At the time, there had been uh, one I believe only one so far designation of a of somebody from the n n p an individual who had been designated not long before and and I got a number of questions which were well what would they ever designate the the police itself what 's going to happen if that happens? How are we going to you know what is uh, how do we deal with that? And, and so now, lo and behold, here we are, March of two thousand twenty, and the NNP is in fact now an SDN. Um, there has been, and so I think, just as a uh, just as a, a practical thought on this, the there is a general license that was issued relating to the designation of the NNP. And uh, one thing that was made clear is, uh, and I believe it's, it's in place through early May, there was, a, there was a, it's GL2, now GL2A, which is in place, General License 2A. Um, and that's in place through early May. And one thing that was made clear is, uh, you know, as, as people uh, may know, there's a lot of connections between the U.S. and Nicaragua, They deal largely in U.S. dollars in Nicaragua. The Cordoba is the local currency, but many transactions are done in U.S. dollars. So we have received over time many, many questions from people transacting business in Nicaragua who have concerns about dealing with U.S. financial institutions and dealing in U.S. dollars because of connections to sanctioned parties that may be directly or indirectly related to deals or transactions that they're doing in Nicaragua. Now, this sort of raises that to a new level. Uh, if, you know, if your company is a vendor of the NNP or you're a bank that is dealing with the NNP, uh, you know, the general license doesn't give much leeway to do much with them, um, in, in the coming weeks, I think what it does do is allows people to continue to uh, receive paychecks from the NNP uh, is is one thing uh, if they're if they're banking with uh, U.S. banks, but what is clear is that NNP funds and resources and accounts that are in U.S. institutions uh, are not are off limits. Those are blocked and, and the general license doesn't uh, allow you to deal with any of that. So, um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see going forward, sort of how people deal with this in Nicaragua and what, uh, sort of knock-on effects they have. They have, they have, like in Venezuela, the, the uh, Ortega regime has shown themselves to be pretty, um, quick to try to, uh, change things up and move things around to, uh, try to evade, Uh, The impact of the sanctions and so I would expect that in the coming weeks and months we'll see more like that, perhaps to lessen the blow to the NNP but uh, for the time being this is a pretty, this is a pretty significant this, you under the radar here in the states but a pretty significant development with respect to our sanctions targeting. Uh, Nicaragua, and it'll be interesting to see what happens from there. So again, I've joined on too long, but uh, I'll throw it to you for any quick thoughts on that. No,
1: very quick. I mean, it's always a big deal when uh, you know a security force within a country is put on the SDN list because it does make it much more difficult to to do transactions within that country, especially given the due diligence requirements that, that um, OFAC expects uh, in terms of not dealing with the SDN. And so once the wind down period expires, I think within in May, I think it's going to be quite difficult to, um, you know, navigate Nicaragua in a way that before these designations, the the sanctions, I
0: think, were a lot more limited. And we've seen that in Russia and other yep. places where there are extensive designations targeting those those types of entities that we and we know uh, uh, that they are sort of pervasive in their presence in sort of day-to-day business. So it'll, it again, to Tim's right. point, it'll be interesting to see how people can navigate that from a due diligence perspective and managing the risk of, of, of doing those things going forward. So um, we will, uh, we'll keep an eye on that. We may come back to that. Uh, yeah. We're already
1: there. seeing cases
0: related yeah, to that. Indeed. Last um, topic.
1: Last topic is if you are not staying sanctions free, <laughs> Uh, you should be careful where you travel Um, so very quickly since it's the lightning round uh, we want to talk about a case uh, out of the Western District of Texas Uh, it involves a gentleman who uh, was living at the time uh, in the UAE uh, and was uh, and and wound up um, getting into a little bit of trouble with the, with the U.S. authorities. Uh, he was selling some parts to Iran and to, to the Iranian government. They were U.S. origin goods. They could be used in all sorts of military products. Um, he was indicted in the Western District of Texas. And he's a gentleman who uh, lives in, currently lives in the UAE or currently lived in the UAE, um, but was, he traveled to uh, the Republic of Georgia. Um, and Mr. Ansari, his name is Murdad Ansari, uh, he, he went to the Republic of Georgia, was arrested in the Republic of Georgia on a U.S. indictment, and was extradited back to the United States uh, on March 17th uh, to face trial in the Western District of Texas for uh, evading the Iran sanctions. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it, the, it, we talk, we've talked in some earlier podcasts on how uh, there is kind of a complex dance when it comes to extradition, particularly with respect to U.S. sanctions, and I think that uh, from country to country, uh, the the it, there certainly is not. Consistent application of this uh, dual criminality doctrine as to whether or not people who are indicted for sanctions violations can be extradited to the U.S. There's a number of cases out of Georgia for sanctions violations in which people have been extradited, and so if you uh, have fears under U.S. sanctions and you're inclined to travel, I would say Georgia would not be a destination uh, of choice. We saw in connection with uh, the the um, CFO of Huawei that potentially Canada is another not good destination, although she's merely been arrested, she hasn't been extradited yet. Uh, and in the, in recent, I think we talked on an earlier podcast about uh, a gentleman from Germany who was arrested in Germany, but the extradition process did not go through. Um, he was released. And we had another recent example of that out of France, there was a gentleman who was indicted for US sanctions violations in France, but instead of being uh, extradited to the United States, he became the subject of a, a prisoner swap between France and Iran. And so so I think that it's really interesting, just generally, that uh, the extradition rules are very different depending upon where you're picked up. And I don't think it depends that much on how friendly the country that you are picked up in is with the United States because um, fr- France and, and Germany are pretty close allies. Canada is a pretty good ally, um, but Georgia seems to be uh, the ally of choice when it comes to extradition.
0: Yeah, I'll, just very quickly, the, the only things I'll add there are, you know, notably in in the case in France and the case in Germany that we talked about, I believe, last time, those were both swaps that sort of undercut U.S. extradition requests where there was a, the ability of the home government uh, to get back one of its citizens that was being held in Iran. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's in play. A lot of people have been speculating that with the um, the Huawei extradition request, the Huawei CFO, that uh, the Canadian government's going to be under tremendous pressure to to do a swap with china because there are canadian citizens that are being held in china believed to be held in china um and that that may be an opening to get them back so uh that i think has a lot to do with it the political dimension of extradition comes in or it gets kind of overridden uh in many cases uh and you know in uh it, that's not the way it's it's sort of supposed to work by the book but uh i think the reality as we've as we've talked about today throughout the reality and unreality of things at the moment is that people and governments and policymakers are making these judgments um, you know things are things are changing so rapidly and I think any any chance people have to do something that's gonna um, benefit the, the the home country is is uh, everybody is sort of seizing on those opportunities now and maybe not giving as much thought to some of these broader uh, commitments and consequences uh, as, as maybe they would in calmer times.
1: Yeah, so. it's also, I think, my rule on extradition is that it's one part law and 25 parts sausage making and <laughs> the sausage making ruled here.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. So uh, with that, we will conclude the lighting round and we will conclude uh, our our latest episode of embargoed, which uh, even though we're not in the same room has somehow managed to be the longest episode we've recorded to date, I guess the, we can thank the COVID-19 crisis or, uh, or give some other signal to the COVID-19 crisis as a result of that. Um, And, and so uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap up. So, um, I would anticipate again, we're recording this March 26th. I think this is going to be up, uh, probably right before the end of the month. So hopefully this won't be too stale by the time you hear it. Although things are sh- shifting so quickly and, and changing so quickly, uh, at the moment. So, uh, before we depart, I will just throw it to Tim and his, his capital background to see if you have any, any final thoughts before we go
1: Two two final thoughts one is um thank you molly for sending me the the uh direct message while we were filming of a picture of the capitol um it was you'll see about an hour in uh my shocked look at at seeing the direct message um, with my picture on it so thank you and then uh the second uh the the second uh comment is uh, stay sanctions free everybody
0: yeah stay sanctions free and and until next time also stay safe stay at home and stay healthy and uh until next time this has been embargoed we will we will catch you next time stay sanctions free take care